You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. On behalf of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, the Asia Foundation, and the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University, I want to welcome all of you uh, to this afternoon's session on the Philippines. I am uh, Vikram Nehru. I am a senior associate in the Asia program at the Carnegie Endowment, and I also occupy the Bakri Chair for Southeast Asian Studies. At the very outset, may I recognize Ambassador Quisha? Welcome, Ambassador. Um, and the topic of today's discussion is going to be on economic and political challenges in the Philippines. The Philippines has perhaps uncharitably been called the sick man of Asia. But growth has picked up uh, in, the last, in the last few years. And most importantly, the Philippines economy was able to weather the global economic crisis in 2008-2009. It had a very rapid pickup in growth in 2010, where it, where it recorded a growth rate of above 7%. But then growth last year declined to 3.7%, and many people, many observers now project that the growth rate this year, in 2012, will be between 4 and 5%. But more worrying than growth rates really has been the fact that the poverty rate has not budged, despite the fact that, the, that growth in the Philippines has uh, picked up. In fact, despite reasonably rapid growth between 2003 and 2006, the poverty rate actually increased. And between 2006 and 2009, the poverty rate barely budged. So why is this the case? You know, what exactly is the reason why growth rate in the Philippines is not leading to poverty reduction. When the, the administration of uh, President Aquino, who came into power uh, about 18 months ago or so, his campaign slogan was, without corruption, there is no poverty. And the big question, I guess, that we want to ask ourselves today is, what does his administration need to do to accelerate growth and to make it more inclusive and sustainable? And more important than just the what is the how. How should the administration go about this difficult task? And to answer these tough and wide-ranging questions, we have an absolutely outstanding panel here today. We have John Nye, who's the <coughs> Frederick Bastiat, Bastiat Chair in Political Economy at the Mercatus Center George Mason University, and is also the Research Director at the Higher School of, of Economics in Moscow. Bert Hoffman, to my right, who's the World Bank's chief economist for East Asia and the Pacific, and previously the bank's country director in the Philippines. And here to my left, and a co-sponsor of this event, Steve Rood, the Asia Foundation's country representative in the Philippines, and a senior visiting professor on Southeast Asian studies at Johns Hopkins University. I'm going to ask the three of them to make an initial set of remarks, a very short set of remarks on what they consider to be the chief challenges facing the Philippines, then we'll have a conversation amongst ourselves, and finally, I'll open it up for a discussion with all of you in the audience. John, may I ask you to go first? Thank you very much, Vikram, and thanks for inviting me. Um, the first thing I'd like to sort of say is um, welcome, and thank you very much for coming. I would like to uh, uh, answer a question I've already been asked three times in, in the lunch break. Yes, indeed, I'm from the Philippines, so hello to all my fellow <laughs> Filipinos. <laughs> um, 
I also have the distinction of being the academic in the panel, which means I'm absolved from any responsibility for anything I say. <laughs> Having said that, let me start out by making an observation. The Philippines, being the poorest country in Southeast Asia, would tell us that even if it po its policy were no better than that of the average Southeast Asian country, should have higher growth rates than its neighbors. That is to say, the country that's catching up should naturally have higher growth rates. It is a sad fact that over the last period, even in its period of relative success of modest 4 to 5% growth, it still lagged countries that were more advanced, which means it was not, not only was it not catching up, it was falling behind when it, sh when even, we're not talking about having ideal policy. We should, it, merely having average policy should produce better growth than that of its richer neighbors. Why is that? I speak here now as someone who has invested only a limited time in the Philippines. Many people are more experts in me than this subject. But I come at it from someone who has worked in development and economic history throughout the world. And something that struck me when looking at the Philippines is very glaring. When I looked at the recommendations of NEDA from this administration, the previous administration, from multiple groups such as the IMF and the Asian Development Bank for the Philippines, overwhelmingly the policies you see promoted are fiscal reform or raising taxes and infrastructure development. And yet, when you listen to the litany of the problems the Philippines has, Everything from poor performance, low productivity, low agriculture, many people abroad, none of these things are addressed by those two major issues. And therefore, I want to bring you back to a, a basic academic point. All, and I repeat, this is not an exception, all economists who have looked at development across the world, China, and all underdeveloped countries, it is also, it's true for almost all mainstream economics from both right and left. It was true for the Krugman Report from the early 90s. All point to structural problems as the fundamental problem holding back most poor countries today. What do we mean by structural? Structural is a fancy code word for something very simple. In countries like the Philippines, the bulk of the country is agricultural, poor, and unproductive. A small fraction of the Philippines is urban, commercial, industrial, and relatively more productive. Countries that are able to move people more quickly from the unproductive sector of the economy to the productive sector of the economy overall do better. One can judge, for instance, a lot of China's success in the last 30 years, I believe Bert has even written about this, primarily as a successful movement of people from the unproductive sector of the economy to the productive sector of the economy. I will say that not only has the Philippines not done this, the structure of the Philippine economy works against it. Corruption is often a problem, but corruption is not primarily to blame here. I put it this way, let me be blunt. I hope I'm not being too offensive. But when I look carefully at the whole system of rules and regulations in the Philippines, what I tell people is that we're Filipinos 
to implement all rules fairly, without corruption, and with full enforcement, the Philippine economy would collapse. The rules of the Philippine economy are almost designed against development. What do I mean by that? Let me take a simple example, partially based upon the work of University of Philippine economist Manny Esguera. In most parts of the world today, especially in the developed world, look at the current crisis. In the United States and other developed countries, there is a relationship between low education and unemployment. Those who are well-educated, I believe in the United States, average unemployment among college degree holders has been in the 4 to 5% range. Average unemployment in those without college degrees, especially those with only high school education or lower, has been much more like 8 to 12% over the last few, several years. The Philippines is an anomaly. The more education you have, the higher your probability of employment, unemployment. According to Manny Esguera, people who have college degrees have a 10% unemployment rate. It drops to 8% for those with only some college or high school. It drops as low as 5 for high school. It drops 3% for those who grade school and 2% for those with no degree, no schooling at all. What is this is indicative of? It is indicative of a situation in which the set of commercial, regulatory, and labor rules in the Philippines purposely restrict production in the commercial and industrial center, purposely limit people's ability to leave agriculture and enter industry. Even though the Philippines is a relatively poor country, apparently the Philippines, I looked at the numbers on this, has one of the highest, when you judge by the average wealth of the country, it has one of the highest minimum wages in the world. Not in absolute terms, but relative to its income. But that minimum wage only applies to commercial industry. It does not apply to service, and it does not apply to agriculture. What does that mean? That essentially creates a wedge. It basically keeps agriculture and services poor and low while creating a barrier. So why do you have high unemployment among college graduates? Because you have this sector of the economy that is walled off. And once you enter that sector, you can't be fired. There's, a, there's something called a regularization policy uh, in commercial sector in the Philippines, where if you've been hired for six months, you can't be fired. What do firms do? They have two classes of workers. They have high productive workers, usually well-educated people with good connections who are permanently employed. And then there are temporary workers who are hired for about three months and then fired. This is, the current system is designed to create the wedge. If you add on top of that, we have a thicket of rules that's designed to limit foreign entry into the Philippines. As you well know, there are constitutional restrictions on, against both owning land by foreigners and against having more than 40% ownership of control of companies. But there are also a large number of other rules that limit it. There's protection of agriculture. There's regulation. Many of these things are designed to limit the efficiency of capital. I recently worked on land reform, and there I saw the same thing too, where Land reform is designed in such a way that although it transfers land to the poor, it then hobbles them with regulations that makes it almost impossible for them to be productive. Then I can, I'll elaborate on some of these things in detail, but a net result is that you have a current system where if you're in the right sector, you earn a lot, and if you're not, you can't. And I will pass it on to my next colleagues while I, I will discuss more in the follow-ups. Thank you very much, John. But Right. Well, thank you very much for uh, for inviting me. This is a true Filipino meeting, and that there was food 
before the meeting, so I feel I feel at home. I, I spent almost four years in the Philippines and uh, uh, enjoyed it enjoyed it greatly. Um, Filipinos also enjoy it greatly. It's one of the happiest countries in the world, and I, I, I did see if, if if there's a really bad economic crisis, only 94% of the people are happy, and if it goes really well, then 98% of the people are happy. So that's I, I I don't know whether that is part of the problem. It doesn't give a real basis for change, and 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 if you want the Filipino spring, but at the same time, the Filipinos were the ones. That put people power on the map and and did and did change did change their government twice. Um, that is by and large. I'm sure that was by and large good, but it does it does also indicate that one of the factors which has actually been uh, 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 an issue with foreign investors, so some of the political instability that is perceived to come from those kind of arrangements. Look. Uh, uh, Fickham said it very 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 well. Four to five percent growth. I wouldn't call that moderate, by the way. If you look at if you look if you look at uh, not just Filipino history, but if you look at the rest of the world, four to five percent growth is really very respectable, and and so on. I think to some extent the Filipinos can be proud of it. I think over the last decade uh, a lot has been achieved, uh, and some of the basis that has been laid, which I think will give better prospect for the Philippines going ahead. Um, why do I say that? Well, I think over the last decade what has been achieved is macroeconomic stability. And one of the big impediments, not the only one, one of the big impediments uh, uh, ever since the 70s, but especially during the 80s, where there was a major macroeconomic crisis, was the, 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 the perception that the Philippines would be the first one off the cart if there were a crisis. And of course, in the 80s, they went into a major debt crisis. And if, if you look at the mid-80s, the, the, the economic decline, uh, uh, if you want, deducted so much from the average that over the last 30 years the Philippines doesn't look that good. But but as, as Vikram said in a private conversation, once you sort of exclude those crisis years, you come to a, quite a bit of a higher average. It's not quite the East Asia average, but but that that only tells you that that the Philippines look, uh, lives in a in, in a very high growing environment. So compared to the rest, they're not growing as rapidly. But compared to the rest of the world, they're doing quite all right. Um, the basis, the, the 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 basics now are are far stronger. The Filipino savings are quite high. In part, foreign savings, the remittances that's that's a well known story. But also, domestic savings have caught up. Um, investment still is relatively modest, but it has recovered to some extent uh, since the lows of the of the East Asia crisis is now well above twenty percent and seems to be on the rise. So there is there is an expansion of 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 the productive capacity in the economy as well. Uh, for the World Bank, uh, the, the key concern amongst all that, all that good news is that actually the, the poverty is not reducing. And it's still around the sort of similar levels. The, the definitions change, but the levels in a way do, do, not, do not change. And, and um, we're, we're looking at a quarter of the population that is still uh, below uh, $1.25 uh, per capita per day. Um, and that hasn't really changed much over the last over the last 30, 30 years. And it means that far more Filipinos now are in poverty than there were 30 years ago, because of course we have almost double the amount of, of Filipinos. Uh, that cause, and I do think it relates to some extent with what John said, there is a, there is a, there is a, a clear divide between a relatively productive, relatively international, relatively well linked up 
modern sector, if you want. If you look at the, the tying in of the production, the manufacturing production in the Philippines with the rest of the uh, production uh, network in East Asia, Philippines looks, looks quite good, looks better, than, looks better than Indonesia, looks better than Vietnam. And so that's, again, it's a hopeful sign for the future, but that potential has not been uh, fully realized. Poor people, they don't make the move to that modern sector. And in part, that may be minimum wages, but there is far more. There's simply not enough growth in those modern sectors. And that growth in the modern sector is actually quite capital intensive. Manufacturing growth has been relatively high over the last 10, 12 years in the Philippines, despite some of the turbulence. Uh, but, but it was, has been very capital intensive. So you don't see manufacturing employment go up uh, a lot. What happens to, to poor people? Well, first of all, they don't get too much of an education. The education system has been an issue for, for, for 30, 40 years. Yes, on average, the Philippines actually have a very long education, but the quality of education is not, is not that high. And at uh, the level of, of, of uh, the poor, uh, poor children have five, six years education, a very high dropout rate. And so they don't have the education to actually meet those minimum wage levels that, uh, that would bring them into the modern sector. So you see a lot of movement. You do see a lot of movement out of, out of agriculture, but it goes into very low, low productive services. So the average, the average production per worker of workers in the Philippines has actually been remarkably stable over the last 30 years. And that's not a good sign. Uh, what happened to the most productive workers? Well, a lot of them emigrate. So the, the emigration, especially over the last 15 years, has been tremendous. To some extent, it signifies the success. Uh, Filipinos are competitive internationally, as long as you take them out of the Philippines. But, but at the same time, it does say something indeed about some of, some of the opportunities within the Philippines. Um, one part of it, and again, I agree with Professor Nye. One part of it is, is this relatively unproductive, non-tradable sector. Where the, the tradable sector is fairly open. Tariffs are very low. You can import and export basically whatever, whatever you want. But the non-tradable sector and the broad non-tradable sector, if you want to establish yourself in, in, in the Philippines in the non-tradable sector, not just infrastructure, but also, say, retail sales um, uh, and others, uh, is relatively unproductive. And that is, that is a, a, a burden on on the Philippine economy as a whole, because it's basically a tax on your, on, your, on your tradable sector as well. So growth in the tradable sector is undermined also by the inefficiencies in the non-tradable sector. And then the dynamics of, of getting people out of poverty uh, with too little education, with fairly high barriers into the formal sector, is a real, a real barrier. Looking forward, though, um, and, and well, one remark, and I'm not the expert, Stephen Root should talk about it, uh, but uh, this is not by accident. This is not, this is not that, 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 that these things happen and it is just, we just need to change it. Uh, I think there is a fair amount of, of, of interest groups that are there that, want, that, that have an interest in maintaining the situation as is. So why do I think going forward we are more hopeful that there is actually quite a bit of a, a boost now in, in governance reforms in all its aspects. And there's some highlights on anti-corruption steps. That's, that's one, but if, while I was uh, country director in the Philippines, uh, some of the more groundwork that was going on actually helps helps in, in reducing the issue of, 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 of corruption in the Philippines, which has been a big, uh, and I would say the political corruption rather than, rather than the, the, the petty corruption, that has been an issue in the Philippines because it protected the sectors that remained inefficient. 
Um, we can talk more about it in detail, but some of the highlights are the, uh, quite a sweeping change in state enterprise reforms that, that <laughs> went under the radar screen, but it was a major, major uh, reforms in state enterprise uh, governance uh, under the Aquino government. Uh, second, public financial management reforms have been quite tremendous over the last, over the last uh, couple of years. Uh, the third, which doesn't sound like a governance reform, but I think it is going to be very important for governance, uh, the conditional cash transfer, which was good for poor people. That's one. But it actually also changed the political dynamics quite a bit uh, in, in the country. And I think going forward, you have a far more, if you want, far more objective political system in place, in part because of the, the, better, social, the better social programs that are currently being put in place. So, Going forward, I'm quite hopeful in the Philippines. From, from the external side, I'm also quite hopeful because even though we can't expect much high growth in the traditional markets of the Philippines, the US, and Europe, but the dynamism in Asia is, is really very, very high. And the one big factor that I think is going to dominate the whole of East Asia is that China is getting richer. China is getting out of production, out of production, traditional, fairly labor-intensive production that, that it was very good at over the last 30 years. So that offers up, that opens up enormous opportunities for other countries in Southeast Asia, including the Philippines, who is already, uh, that is already quite tied into those production networks. So going forward, I, th I actually see an acceleration of growth because of the improvements that we have seen over the last over the last decade, macroeconomic stability in the last couple of years, more structural changes, including uh, changes that affect the political economy of the Philippines. Thanks. Thank you, Bud. Steve. Thank you for uh, hosting this up, uh, Vikram. The uh, uh, crowd in the room gives a good example of uh, how much more interest there is in the Philippines these days than, than previous. I remember giving talks 12 years ago, and uh, it would uh, be a very lonely room. Uh, <laughs> uh, many of you know, and it's, it's part of the invitation, there's a, a 2 plus 2 on Monday uh, when the Secretary of Foreign Affairs and the Secretary of National Defense will come here and talk to the Secretaries of Defense and State. Um, and so we thought that this would be an appropriate time to do this as sort of a curtain raiser uh, to uh, the fact that there, there will be fairly high level strategic dialogue going on. Um, and I understand the President Aquino will be coming later this, this year uh, on a state visit. So uh, we're trying to uh, get ahead of the curve a little bit. Uh, I'm trying to use my time at uh, SICE, uh, which was uh, a wonderful opportunity for me to try to think through some of the issues. I've been very busy the last 12 years doing peace, prosperity, justice, and democracy in the Philippines. Um, and having accomplished all that, I thought I'd sit back and, and think about it a little bit. Uh, but it does give me a perspective. I've been there 30 years now, uh, and so I remember the, the debt crises and, and you know when we couldn't buy rice and, and, and so on. Um, but I've been the Asia Foundation representative now for 12 years, and so in 2001 and, and in uh, last year, 2011, uh, I did bring uh, delegations from the Philippines to try to explain what happened during the changeover from Estrada to uh, Arroyo and then from Arroyo to Aquino. And both times I got the same kind of question, which was, what makes you think it's going to be different this time? Right? Because, you know... I first heard from, from Ambassador Hubbard. Am I, is my mic suddenly Okay. I first heard from Ambassador Hubbard uh, the, the phrase, in the Philippines, things are never as bad as you think or as good as you hope, right? Uh, but it turns out that phrase goes back to the late 1950s. Okay. Uh, uh, but 
I am a perennial optimist, and, and uh, I, some of the reasons that I was going to cite have already been cited by Bert, uh, because these under-the-radar reforms in public finance management uh, and so on have been, been coming out. Um, so that uh, uh, PCIJ just ran a story, Philippine Center for Investigative Journalism just ran a story within the last couple of weeks about how the Department of Public Works and Highways has been able to squeeze some 30% of cost out of uh, public works contracts. Um, and um, so they, they, were, they were in fact criticized for taking the time to do that so that spending slowed down for a while. Uh, but now that they've managed to do it, we're getting more infrastructure for the same budget, which is a nice boost, uh, uh, whether or not infrastructure is, is, is as fundamental as people seem to think. It's nice to be able to move around on roads, uh, airports, and so on. Um, the, the fundamental fact, uh, if you, it, uh, there, there was an interesting uh, column about uh, the, the Southeast Asia's llama uh, in the Financial Times, uh, a reference to a Bolivian level of growth, okay, uh, and it's finally starting to trot. And uh, he was citing various issues, but w at the core of his analysis was that the Philippines is in a better place politically than it was before. Um, uh, one of the characteristics of the way people regard President Aquino is they don't think he's power hungry, okay, which is unusual for the way the Filipinos regard their politicians. So that uh, the survey data are absolutely clear on this. Um, his, the, the rating of the national administration, Social Weather Stations just came out with the latest within this past week. The rating of the national administration is at record levels and has stayed at record levels since he was uh, uh, inaugurated. Um, the, it's currently at, at, at the way they do it, it's currently a plus 46. The earlier records in the early uh, Ramos and Estrada uh, eras were only plus 32 or plus 35. So it's A, considerably higher than before, and B, more sustained than before. The f I mean, there's a lot of political capital in there behind some of these uh, under-the-radar uh, kinds of uh, changes that are being made. Um, and conditional cash transfer, uh, I would, uh, the nice thing about conditional cash transfer, to elaborate a little bit on, on Bert, is that it, it makes the average person more independent from the local politician and the local officials so that they can begin to demand. Similarly, the Philippines has accelerated giving urban residents their titles by a factor of 10 over the last 10, uh, over the last year so that, you know, if you have secure title to your land, you are less susceptible. Uh, I just wrote about this in our blog um, uh, this past week. So that, you know, th there is hope for fundamental political change. Now, there are many problems facing the Philippines. Uh, one that doesn't get a lot of uh, play, although there, it actually made one of the little paragraphs of the uh, New York Times, is the, uh, is the communist insurgency. There was just an ambush in Ifugao where nine soldiers were killed. Uh, Ifugao was up in the northern Philippines in the mountains. Uh, peace talks with the NPA are absolutely stalled. Okay, um, the government was was fairly optimistic, but it turned out their optimism optimism was unrealistic. Uh, it stalled over the issue of detainees. That the uh, well, it's long long story. It stalled over issues of detainees, and we can talk about that. Uh, in contrast, the uh, 
peace talks with the separatist Moro Islamic Liberation Front is moving forward, albeit more slowly than many of us would have wanted. Um, the most recent uh, Tuesday or Wednesday, depending on how you count it, uh, issue of a declaration of principles going forward got signed and, and put forward in Kuala Lumpur so that uh, they're now meeting monthly and they're trying to bring it forward. Uh, so there are there is progress there. That's not stalled. And the peace situation in Mindanao is uh, very much uh, better than it was a couple of years ago after the memorandum of agreement that they had reached with the, Mo with the Moro Islamic Liberation Front was declared unconstitutional by the Supreme Court under the Arroyo administration. So, I mean, there, people are moving forward. Uh, nobody doubts on the peace, peace front uh, the sincerity, the personal sincerity of uh, President Aquino. The Moro Islamic Liberation Front and, and other forces all say that they, they believe in the sincerity of President Aquino on the issue. They just wonder whether or not his government can deliver the kind of reforms that would lead to peace and development. And I think that's an, an open question. Um, this being the Philippines, this being politics, you can already see uh, it, we're only a year away from the midterm elections, and so uh, we're, we're getting ready for the 2016 elections already. Uh, uh, there are realignments ongoing uh, in the Philippines. The president and the vice president are elected uh, separately. And although the two men have a good personal relationship, uh, politically they are in different streams. Uh, and so the vice president is beginning to uh, organize his forces for 2013 and obvious preparation and, in fact, declared preparation for 2016. So uh, the, uh, the political uh, uh, fanfare that Bert made allusion to uh, will continue, um, and that's just the way the Philippines is. The Philippines loves their elections. Uh, they don't take them away. That's even, even President Marcos had to come up with elections very quickly after he declared martial law. Um, and so uh, I think the observers will have to be able to look underneath the froth of the media, the froth of the politics, to try to look, discern some of these longer-term changes that are underway. Well, thank you very much, uh, Steve. John, I'm going to ask you a question following on from what you said. It's going to be actually a three-part question, but I would still urge you to be brief in your answer. Uh, I have the privilege of asking uh, long questions. Um, the first is why. Why is it that this structure of incentives, regulations, policies have accumulated in the Philippines to put it on a very different path compared to other countries in East Asia? What's the origin of the problem precisely? Secondly, following on from that, what would you say would be the three biggest policy priorities then for the government? And third, would you agree with uh, Bert and Steve that uh, the Aquino government provides considerable uh, 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 um, fresh hope uh, that some of these difficult problems will be tackled? But are you willing to stay here till next Thursday? Yeah. That's why I have to be brief. <laughs> but um, let me see if I can answer it this way. The long history of the Philippines, it's often remarked that the Philippines is much like South America. And very often, the facile comparison is because of the Catholicism in the Philippines. But in fact, the Philippines is more like countries like Argentina in a very different way. 
It's different in the, it is the same not because of its Catholicism, but because like Argentina, it was a relatively prosperous country. But not it was never prosperous, but by the standards of its neighbors in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, as a function of being land rich, it was also politically dominated by agricultural elites. All right, this is very important. Its politics and its economy were dominated by agricultural elites. If you look historically and say in the early period of the American occupation and in the early 1910s, Philippine wages for agricultural laborers were relatively high, as in Argentina, because of the high land-to-labor ratio. But very high population growth, combined with an unwillingness to make important commercial reforms, led to that landed elite hanging on to their privileges. Moreover, the advent of democracy has merely added population to that problem, a populism. That is, ironically, many times the groups that are seen as in antagonism to the elite actually reinforce the elite's power. What do I mean by that? The elite's power depends upon having poor, unproductive Filipinos stay in agriculture. Ironically, many reforms designed to remove that, like land reform, actually reinforce that trend. And if you have a combination of both protection and inefficient agricultural reform, you both strengthen the political power of the elite while slowing down growth. Let me give you an example. The theoretical way that a lot of land reform is supposed to work, at least the way when I teach my students, is that you make a transfer of the land to the poor, and then you allow this new transfer to grow conditional upon a productive and open agricultural economy. That is not how it works in the Philippines. How it works in the Philippines is that whenever land reform has been implemented, and this is CARP I'm speaking about now, CARP transfers land from the landowner to the smallholder, and then the smallholder is not allowed to buy more land. He is also not allowed to sell his land. So he only has seven hectares of land, regardless of the crop. I need not tell you that there are parts of the country in which seven hectares is a lot. And there are parts of the country for certain crops in which seven hectares is not enough to do well. Notice, he cannot sell the land, he cannot buy more land, and he's constrained in how he can develop it. <coughs> what is the net result of this? As is well known in studies in the Philippines, very often that land is resold unofficially and illegally back to the original landlord. So you, and people will tell me, oh, so all we've done is replicate the old system. No, you haven't replicated. It's worse. It's 10 times worse. Why is it worse? Imagine that in the old system, imagine that in an open system, a mid-level farmer who is not an old elite, he's rich, he's not a poor farmer, but he's not an old elite, can buy up land and challenge the elite. That is no longer possible now. The elite actually has monopoly protection. Why is that? Think about it this way. The only group capable of socially enforcing an illegal property right is going to be the old elite. So what happens is that the new peasant, when they illegally sell their land, sells it at below market price, goes back to work. Now the old elite has the land. He also has, keeps the worker. It, it's a disincentive for the worker to move to the city. And he is protected from competition from mid-level or, say, new rich farmers. This system is a recipe for inefficiency. On top of that, what happens is the government will then 
has policies to subsidize and try to encourage human capital in the agricultural sector by pouring in money to help develop their productivity. But ironically, the more unproductive they are, the more the demand for subsidy comes. So it becomes a closed-loop political system. Moreover, you have protection against foreign imports. One of the great disasters that the World Bank has written about is the Philippine NFA plan. In order to protect Philippine farmers of rice, the Philippines has a 50% tariff on agriculture. That is the best part of the policy. And I speak as an economist who abhors tariffs. In fact, if it were merely a 50% tariff on rice, it would be paradise compared to the current system. The current system actually requires that let us say you wish to import rice to the Philippines. A government agency must first determine that rice imports are necessary and then authorize quotas on the rice on which the tariffs are paid and then impound those quotas. The government buys it and then stockpiles the rice and then releases that to selected resellers at the right time. But then if the price of rice is too high, the government has to subsidize the price of rice to prevent it from going up too high. So you have the trifecta of everything economists say is bad, which is you have tariffs, quotas, and regulations all in the same place. I need not remind you, so anybody's Filipino, will know that the system I just described is rampant with corruption. It is almost designed to encourage corruption. And it helps neither the Filipino farmer nor the Filipino eater of rice. There are many rules like this that are in place because vested interests like them. Now, having said that, where is the positive? The Aquino's government commitment to clean government means that it is possible to move forward potentially in terms of serious reforms that will stick. But for that to happen, they need to ask themselves which rules need to be changed. I, I, I say this all the time in my talks in the Philippines. Since I've been growing up, when I grew up in the Philippines, everybody always sort of say, the rules are bad and the law is never followed. What is the answer? Have more laws. The Philippines is fixated on legalism. There will be no long-term, there, there may be corruption reform in the short, but there will be no long-term corruption reform unless you solve the problem that the Philippines both has, paradoxically, too much and too little government. That is, at the same time, there are important things that the state should do that it's not doing. And unimportant or bad things that the state should do that it's doing. The only way to get true, in my view, long-term corruption reform is to simultaneously decide which rules are important and enforce them, and which rules are unimportant or harmful and abolish them. If you say, let's just... In, in, impose all the rules fairly and correctly, you will get nowhere. That is to say, if somebody tells me there's going to be a reform that does not tell me which half of the rules they're going to remove, then it is not a serious reform. So, Bert, which rules should be enforced and which should be let go? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Look, I, uh, on, on, on the key bottlenecks, and, and there is a whole political dimension behind it, which you know, I'm not the expert, I'm not going to talk about. Uh, un unlike Professor Nye, I do believe that uh, good infrastructure actually does something for productivity. So uh, the, the underinvestment in, in infrastructure clearly is an impediment to, to, to productivity in the Philippines, but also is, is an impediment to an expansion of 
the successful areas of the Philippines, and be it microelectronics or or or, or even at some point it's going to be uh, the BPOs if the back if the backbone if the backbone uh, services in 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 IT is not going to maintain, be maintained uh, in a proper way. Um, so that that remains an issue. The 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 key sort of governance issue, uh, frankly, I, I'm not sure that it's actually corruption uh, in, in, in a smaller sense, but the, the political uncertainty that comes with the political system and the political judicial system, I should say, is uh, seen to be quite an impediment, at least for foreign investors, but also for new investors to, to, to progress. So that is an area where I think uh, progress can and should be made. Um, uh, Supreme Court that continues to revise its 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 its, its judgment is, is is something quite incomprehensible for at least from a from a from a continental European perspective. Well, if the Supreme Court has spoken, it has spoken in the United States. If the Supreme Court has spoken, they won't look at it for the next 30, 40 years. Uh, certain topics in the Philippines, it can be next week that they reconsider. I I find that quite striking, and and. Uh, I don't exactly know, frankly, I don't exactly know where the rules, how these rules are based, but that is something that, that makes at least foreign investors very uncertain, but I also believe that domestic investors are heavily affected by it. Uh, the third area, and that is, that is a, 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 a difficult area of reform, but it is the labor market rules and regulations, and, and in part it is the high minimum wage that, that, that uh, Professor Nye pointed out. I mean, the consequence of it is that, that very few people actually earn that high minimum wage. So you are talking about a rule that indeed only applies to very few people and a shrinking number of people because the informality in the economy is actually increasing. It's not just the minimum wage, it is also the, 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 the hire and fire rules, it is the, the high cost of, of uh, um, a reduction in the labor force of, of particular companies where the, the, the payout to, to uh, let go workers is very high. So there are impediments to actually hiring workers and you see that the, the labor intensity of, of, of growing sectors, as I mentioned before, is, is reducing. How to, how to solve that? I mean, you can't just say, okay, we're gonna abolish all those rules and then and, 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 and we start again with a clean slate, pure market-based, pure market-based uh, labor, uh, labor uh, contracts. Uh, something has to happen. Uh, and, and whether that is in, in, in a better uh, unemployment and insurance system or uh, a better overall, better overall uh, uh, social protection system is, is probably one element that can play a role. But frankly, reforms, reforms in labor market are often better in a more dynamic environment where you actually have people finding finding jobs once they lose a job. So so the timing may still not be right, but at some point that would need to be would need to be addressed. And finally I, I come back to the point I made earlier on, on the poverty deviation side. Uh, the the uh, the education sector, uh, the quality of education on the supply side, but also the attendance of of of, uh, of of education from the demand side and especially from the from the poor is going to remain very important for the next 10, 20 years. As, as, as I said, the average, the average looks fine, but at the, at, the, at the level of the poverty, so those people that do not make it to the formal labor market, a lot more investment is needed, and a lot, a lot more is needed to keep, to keep people in, in, uh, in schools. And that requires the, the condition of cash transfer is one, but to, uh, further reforms in the education system remains very important. 
Can I just follow up on two points, uh, and uh, if you could respond quickly to them. Uh, you made a point about the social protection system and the poverty deviation side in your, in your earlier remarks. Mm talked about the conditional cash transfer in the Philippines. This has been one of the more remarkable success stories, actually, of policy. It's one of the largest conditional cash transfer schemes, I think, in the world, rivaling those in Latin America. Can you please tell us a little bit more about, uh, about this scheme? Why does it work uh, as it does? And, uh, and I understand that it's going to now be increased to 2.3 million families uh, throughout the country. So... Uh, what, why is this working and, and, and not other uh, aspects of policy? Huh. Um, well, first is actually the implementers are, are the department that are known as the cleanest department yes. in, in the whole yeah. of the Philippines, the Department, <laughs> department of Social Welfare, with, with a number of tremendously dedicated people at the top and throughout the ranks. So there is, there is actually a mechanism uh, that was, if you want, underutilized. It was there, and they administrated lots of small, little programs all around the country. So the, the, the infrastructure, the backbone was there, but it wasn't used for sort of more significant, for more significant programs. Uh, so that I think it was one one uh, point of success. The second was, uh, if you want, incidental, the the the, the food crisis of two thousand and eight triggered a demand for better safety nets and. The first reaction was all kinds of very inefficient programs, very partial, very Manila-based, and then some good ideas came around, um, um, uh, and and so if you want, it was a better mousetrap compared to what the Philippines was doing. It's not that the Philippines was not putting any social protection uh, be, before the conditional cash transfer. As a matter of fact, they spent about a percent of a percent of GDP on what can broadly be, be, be branded as, as social protection, uh, but very inefficiently, very partial, never a national program. So this was the first time that it was the aim for a national program to have in place four shocks. Uh, interesting enough, since, ever since then, then we had the financial crisis, and, and now worldwide we're talking about, you know, well, the world has changed, it's more volatile, so you need much more of these social protection systems all around the world. Uh, President Zodigo of the World Bank is now on board as well. But, but the third, and that's made the national expansion, and there I, I do believe that the, the, the Filipino, uh, the, 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 the Aquino government did also see this, this, this political dimension of, of a, a better safety net, uh, detaching indeed the, the, the electorate from, from uh, the, 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 the local politicians so, so that you have... A, that they more objectively vote, but B, also that the local politicians would need to do more in order to actually get the vote uh, from them. And so that political dimension of the conditional cash transfer, I think, uh, gave that nationwide expansion. Uh, uh, the, 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 the Aquino presidency actually sees, sees sort of a, a relatively quick end to the conditional cash transfer program. Uh, they, they, they do anticipate that they want to do more to get all these people out of poverty. Frankly, I hope that it works, but, uh, but given that a quarter of the population is in poverty, I think a system like this will have to be in place for far longer if you look at, if you look at the effects on, in, in the countries that have it for much longer, Mexico, Brazil, some of the other Latin American countries. Uh, the effects are definitely there. The long-term effects are there, i.e. investment in, in human resources uh, and uh, education and health. But of course, the short-term effect is this poverty alleviation plus then the political dynamics that follow. So I think it's going to be there for, for a bit longer than maybe the president, the president aims for. 
but, but it has very good, uh, very good effects as we see it. Well, thanks a lot, Bert. Steve, I'm going to turn to you uh, and ask you to respond to two points, uh, one made by, uh, the same point really, one made by uh, John and one made by Bert. John said that there was a Philippine fixation on legalism. And one of Bert's first recommendations was to re sort of rethink the political judicial system, the way you put it, uh, Bert. What role does the judicial system play in the Philippines? And can you explain to us uh, what is the importance of the current impeachment proceedings against the Supreme Court Justice, Renato, uh, Renato Corona? Uh, and how does all this sort of come together? And what are your recommendations vis-a-vis -vis the judicial system? Uh, yeah, the, the, I would absolutely agree that the Filipinos are, are uh, legalistic culture, uh, and they, they feel very uh, uh, worried when there's not a constitution. I saw that all in 1986, that there was a great demand for constitutionalism, um, and there is a, a great demand for a rule to, to uh, uh, apply to everything. Um, with the understanding, as, as, as John says, that in fact, you know, as Carlos P. Romulo actually said, in the Philippines we have no laws, only suggestions. Uh, and so you begin to get it, and, and, if, and if you don't have the ability to socially enforce, take your term, it's a nice term, if you don't have the ability to socially enforce a rule, then it won't really work for you. But if you do have the ability to socially enforce a rule, suddenly you have the whole mechanism of the state to work with. And so you begin to get this involution of laws and so on. And so one of the things that, that is, is uh, hopefully to be done uh, over the next decade or so is to have a, uh, a, a situation where you can, in a steady fashion, do legal reform. There was, in fact, about a decade of legal reform uh, uh, Sparked by a World Bank project uh, and, and led by Chief, former Chief Justice uh, Hilario Davide, um, and that came to an end as part of the general institutional deterioration during the late Arroyo administration, and that needs to be revived. Uh, progress was made; the court backlog and such like went down, and so on. Uh, now, to, to get to the the uh, the. Uh, Current impeachment trial of Chief Justice Corona, which the the Senate is in recess, but will uh, reconvene, I think, in the first week of May. Um, the uh, it was a judgment call on the part of the administration that uh, it was necessary in order to be able to pursue corruption charges against the former administration, the Arroyo administration. Uh, and uh, they have all sorts of, of reasons for that, including the, the uh, very fast temporary restraining order on the uh, enforcement of a travel ban against the president last November, against President uh, Arroyo, last uh, now Congresswoman Arroyo, uh, last November. Uh, and, and so they decided they had to move. This was, this was after, remember, the Supreme Court struck down a truth commission. His executive order number one was an attempt to do this to get around the uh, uh, fact that the ombudsman, the prosecutorial arm of anti-corruption, was a, a, a royal appointee. Then uh, the Supreme Court held up the impeachment uh, movements against that ombudsman. Uh, 
uh, although she finally resigned uh, and was replaced. And then, and then they started uh, uh, considering whether or not the indictment against uh, President, uh, former President Arroyo was going to be uh, legal because of the fact that the Commission on Elections and the Department of Justice had a joint task force to look into electoral fraud. And the Commission on Elections being an independent commission under the Constitution, they, they, they were going to attack that constitutional question. In short, there was a number of procedural obstacles to what President uh, Aquino felt was his anti-corruption uh, 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 drive that that come out of of the uh, uh, Supreme Court and and some of the charges in the Supreme Court have to do with the flip flops that uh, Bert is referring to the fact that that changes in in uh, rulings would happen very rapidly uh, under very mysterious circumstances. Is there a timeline for this process? Is there what is the end result? Uh, when is the end result going to? The end result should be out be before the the reconvening of Congress for the next session in July. That is, when when Senate comes back in May, they should finish it, um, and they, they, the senators all say they will. And I'm not going to ask you where they're going to come out of the proceedings. <laughs> no, that, that would be unfair. I told him not to. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's. Uh, I think we've had a fantastic uh, uh, set of comments uh, from the panelists, uh, which have laid out the groundwork. Some really interesting ideas. Uh, in fact, uh, some uh, different uh, uh, proposals as well. Let's open it up to the audience. So when you do ask your questions, please state your name as well as your affiliation. That will be very helpful. And try and keep your questions short so that we have enough time to cover as many questions as possible. Ambassador. Well, first, let me thank you. First of all, let, let's get a mic to you, Ambassador. So I just wanted to express my appreciation to Carnegie Endowment for New Vikram and uh, the Asia Foundation. So Steve for holding this forum uh, on the Philippines. And I want to thank the panelists, Professor John Nye, uh, Bert Hoffman, good friend, and uh, another good friend, Steve Root, for your comments uh, and, and suggestions. So, um, but let me just focus first on the comment about, say, agriculture. Uh, it's true that, that there are structural reforms, uh, not just in agriculture, but in other sectors that have to be addressed. Uh, but let me also point out that this Roy administration has been in office for 22 months. And the fact that there's been a focus on Aquino. Aquino. Uh, this, I'm sorry, this uh, Aquino <laughs> administration. I'm glad somebody else does that. I might lose my job. <laughs> <laughs> this Aquino has been in office for 22 months. Um, the focus on anti-corruption and good governance has, has yielded some very positive res results. Take, for example, the importation of rice. At one point, we were the biggest importer of rice in the world during the Arroyo administration. And it was 2008 or something. And we, in fact, drove up the prices of rice at the highest levels. Um, under the current administration, the Secretary of Agriculture is saying that by 2013, 2014, we will be self-sufficient in rice. Because, you know, the NFA is no longer importing the kind of, the level, or the volumes of rice that they were importing <coughs> under the Arroyo administration. And that was because there was so much money to be made on the importations of rice. So just by that, in fact, I think 2011, there was a very large, uh, very significant reduction in the 
importation of rice. Um, uh, and the Secretary of Agriculture, in fact, is, is um, optimistic that this year we may not even have to import any rice. And if we have to probably a small amount, and by 2013 we will be self-sufficient. So that's, that's one example. Another policy reform is in education. Uh, the K-12 program, several administrations attempted to um, make the change from a 10-year cycle to a 12-year cycle. They failed. And finally, because of political will, uh, the Aquino administration has now been able to put uh, to, to implement the 12-year cycle. We were one of only two countries in the world that had a 10-year cycle in education. So finally, we've gotten out of that. And, uh, and I'm confident that that will also uh, contribute to the improvements in terms of education, particularly for the lower-income groups. Because as mentioned, you know, it's really in the lower-income groups that uh, there's been um, probably... Um, the lack of a quality education, because the public schools, unfortunately, have not been able to uh, provide the kind of, uh, I guess, uh, educate that the, the kids in the um, uh, should be getting the in the elementary grades and and even in high school. So, in a short span of 22 months, I think there have been a, a number of significant reforms that have been uh, now the the conditional cash transfer. Um, during the Arroyo administration, the first, I think, two years that it was in, implemented, the budget was roughly about $7 billion. In the first year of the Aquino administration, they increased it to $21 billion, or three times. And a lot of people were very skeptical that the DSWD would be able to implement. And they implemented it successfully, such that this year they're setting a budget of $39 billion. Now, I, I agree that that should be temporary, and, and that should not last for too long. And this is why the president is really focusing on job creation. What he'd like to do is to be able to, job, to create jobs in the Philippines, because he also realizes that we have over 9 million overseas Filipinos. And the challenge to the government is to create jobs in the country. So I think um, what has been accomplished so far is quite significant in the short time that the Aquino administration has been in, in, um, in office. So just wanted to add those comments. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ambassador. Very, very useful. Yes, please, one gentleman at the back. Uh, thank you very much. One Wait, sec. Mike. Just get the mic to you. Uh, my name is Mike Kellerman. I'm with Xinhua News Service. Um, a question about the upcoming U.S.-Philippine Summit, uh, which is uh, kind of a big deal. Um, the U.S. administration appears to be tilting its... Um, uh, military presence in Southeast Asia and in the southeastern portion and the Philippines area. And as I recall, the military presence of the U.S. was cut back quite a bit, but under the Obama administration, they apparently want to increase it. Could you guys talk a little bit, and this is for any or, or all of you, about this upcoming uh, summit between the U.S. and Philippines and why it's so important? What are the issues at stake here, please? Um, this is one thing. I, the economy is very interesting. This is one thing, though, this uh, may, may have a little bit of news. <laughs> so can you pontificate, please, on that topic? Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Let's take a few more. There was a lady, I think, at the back who had raised her hand. Yes, please. My name is Mindy Cutler. I'm with Asia Policy Point. We're a research center uh, that studies Asia and particularly innovation policy. 
Um, one of the drivers of China, Korea, Taiwan was a very well thought out science and technology policy, innovation policy. And that has been now emerging as well in Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam. What is the Philippines? In the, uh, do they have a science and technology policy, innovation policy? And all the countries that I mentioned now have science and technology agreements with the United States. I'm embarrassed to say I don't know the situation in the, with the Philippines. Thank you very much. Let's take one more question. Yes, please. This a lady there. Yes. Hello, this is Yan Ying Chen with uh, Hong Kong Phoenix TV. Uh, I want to know that for uh, I know China now is the third large China now is the third large uh, trade partner with Philippines, and then like, given this is uh, recently uh, controversial issues in South China Sea, so I want to know that is will be any like, friction between these two trade partners afterwards, and then that for the South China Sea there are lots of like, abundant um, petroleum and the gas within that area, and how will we wet that like, this? resource to Philippines economics. Thank you very much. Steve, can I ask you to take the question on the issues in the 2 plus 2, but if you could talk about science and technology and innovation in the Philippines, and if you could... <laughs> <laughs> and uh, perhaps you might want to take the, the last question on uh, China and uh, Philippines. Steve. Uh, okay, uh, the, uh, uh, I was hoping that nobody would ask that question so that we could find out the answer on Monday or Tuesday, uh, but uh, I'll have to go out on a limb having put myself in this situation. Um, the, uh, after the uh, Philippine Senate voted not to renew the basis treaty in 1991, there was a, uh, a, a total drawdown, as you can imagine, in the relationship between Philippines and, and uh, U.S. In the, in the military side. Uh, but that has begun to, for, for some time now, there's been a visiting forces agreement that has allowed uh, uh, exercises. So there have been regular balikatan exercises. Um, annual, and those are the ones that just concluded uh, at uh, um, the last couple of weeks uh, where they had um, uh, various sea-based and, and also emergency response uh, issues that they were training on. The United States also maintains a Joint Special Operations Task Force on six-month rotation uh, down in the southern Philippines. Uh, they are on Philippine bases. Um, they do intelligence fusion and, and training issues and, and so on. And any one of them is only there for six months. And there's about, uh, I think, 600 of them at, at any given time in, in the United States. What's being discussed on the security side is an increased tempo of visits and training and, and that kind of thing. Not, not, not U.S. bases or, or anything like that, but rather uh, whether there can be, uh, you know, for instance, increased uh, surveillance flights over the West Philippine Sea, whether there can be uh, uh, logistics arrangements that would allow for the uh, rap more rapid deployment of the United States forces, uh, whether or not uh, joint training on humanitarian and disaster response can, can move forward and, and the like. Uh, so that's sort of on the security side. Uh, on, on the uh, diplomatic side, uh, there has been a fair amount of uh, interaction between the United States and uh, Philippines on the issues of the West Philippines, South China Sea, depending on, on how you're talking about it. Um, and uh, the United States has made it clear that they do not take sides on the issues of territory, but they do want to A, make sure it's peaceful, and B, uh, 
uh, ensure the freedom of navigation in, 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 that, in that sea. So uh, that is definitely going to be a, a discussion. Uh, we, and just to sort of uh, respond a little bit to the, the uh, la later question, the Philippines doesn't want this to become the focus of Philippine-China relations. There's lots of other stuff going on with China. They, the president went there and had a very successful commercial visit in October or November last year. So they want that to continue because it, China is obviously an important trading partner um, and in fact is uh, providing assistance to the Philippines. So they don't want it to be a, uh, you know, a, a, the world again China or, or taking sides, but they do want to talk to the United States, their treaty ally, about what are some of the issues in, in that sea and how might respond. And, and quite frankly, as a footnote, and, and Vikram and I have discussed this a little bit, uh, what is the role of ASEAN in this? Because the obvious answer is you need this to be multilateral, whether that is ASEAN or the UN Tribunal on the Law of the Sea or something like a, a, a regularized process rather than a bilateral or a trilateral issue because that doesn't help anybody. Thank you, Steve. But Well, I'm going to have to disappoint you. I don't know that much about science <laughs> and technology policy in the Philippines. Uh, the one uh, I mean, I do recognize that a number of countries in the region have been very successful, uh, especially Korea, especially Japan. Uh, China is now uh, clearly going going in this in, in a similar direction. I think the Philippines is is still one or two steps back. And one of the important elements of science and technology policy that I did look at is the higher education system, and especially the university system. And there, I believe that that. Um, there has been a, 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 quite a relative decline. I mean, the, the, the old Filipinos do tell me that uh, in the 50s and 60s, everybody came to the Philippines to get educated. Uh, the, the, the state university system has since then uh, uh, basically went through, through a relative decline. Uh, in part, we have observed that, that if you want the, the, the focus of, of uh, budgetary resources, has been less than optimal. And now there are so many state colleges that if you want the, 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 the limited resources of the budget are now clearly spread out too thin. So one of the things that, that we, and actually Professor Nye and I, we have been thinking about is, is that there's a real opportunity for reforms in that area to restore some of the center of excellence or, or create some of the center of excellence in the Philippines, on particular areas where the Philippines has a comparative advantage in its, in its production structure and be it be it on IT-related services, which is an obvious one, but 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 also the the the, the, the electronics electronics industry, or for that matter, agriculture industry, uh, building upon a stronger university system, and then having the center of excellences in those areas in which the Philippines can compete, uh, would be a very good way forward. But it does it it would require quite a bit of reforms in the university system. So that's that's all. Uh, that I know about the science and technology system in the, in the Philippines. Thank you, Mark. John? Um, the question about, uh, it's twofold, about the, um, the relationships between Philippines and China and also the problems of disputed lands and the potential for very large petrol and other uh, natural resources there. I think those two are related in unfortunate ways. I think the, the inevitable part is that the Philippines and all of Asia will have a lot to do with China. That is to say, it's impossible to imagine economic development without greater trade and without greater cooperation and commercial exchange with China. For that reason, I, we know that if there's a struggle over natural resources in parts of, say, the Spratly Islands or such, it will, only, it will be a distraction. Indeed, in some ways, I hope there are no, there's no oil and gas there at all. 
<laughs> Why do I say that? Some of you may have heard the term the resource curse. It's well known in the economics literature that countries which have particularly weak institutions are often harmed by, by oil and gas. That is, many of the most oil-rich countries in the world are often among the least willing to reform their economies. And many of those, the Asian tigers particularly, have grown with minimal natural resources. And in a country like the Philippines, my, my view is that, one, if there really is a bonanza in oil and natural gas in those areas, you know that is going to be a major foreign policy struggle. We know that that's going to lead to conflict between the Philippines and China that is going to spill over into productive areas of business. Moreover, it's going to be a distraction from other parts of the economy, and there will be huge incentives for politicians of all kinds to get their hands in there to grab those resources. Hence, rather than worry about improving the economy, it will be, it will be like literally, in, instead of working, it will, be like, it will be like being told, there's a room there with gold, but we're fighting over who gets to open the door first. And all resources and all... Um, all legal and social and political means will be made to exploit that room, which will do more probably to enrich a few people than really help the country prosper. I've never seen any evidence that a sudden shock of natural resources for what is a relative, as a country in difficulties, suddenly makes an enormous difference. And one that is disputed with a much more powerful partner is even more likely to lead to conflict because it's going to spill over. I would like to comment on the issue of China as a subset of a greater issue of jobs. One of the things that's often remarked is the problem of overseas Filipino workers, which are a huge number of people and it's a large part of foreign reserves, are due to remittances. I argue that there is no way to create more jobs unless the Philippines is more open to capital, both local capital and foreign capital. And they must find a way to do that. What do I mean by that? Let us say that tomorrow some country insert any country you want, were to propose opening up a series of factories in the Philippines. And they would, their, their, their conditions would be they would pay no taxes to the Philippine government, they would employ 50% foreign workers, they would have all foreign managers, and they would flout all Philippine rules in exchange for a very high rate of growth. The government would laugh at them. I tell them, yes, but somehow if we take those Filipinos and move them to those factories abroad, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, it's worse. And, and therefore, now, now, now we're not, no, no country is asking for those kinds of conditions. But that is, in fact, the net result of the out-migration of Filipinos. It is as if you create factories which have, the Philippines has no control over and benefits not at all from either its production, its growth, or its, or its tax revenue. In contrast, the actual system in the Philippines heavily restricts foreign workers, heavily restricts foreign managers, heavily restricts foreign um, investment, and imposes all sorts of regulatory and tax barriers. Surely there must be some compromise, because the result of restricting them, the, the, when I talk to officials, and I have talked to government officials about this, they always say, well, we don't want to be exploited by the workers, by the foreigners. And the answer is you are, except you do it in the form of sending them abroad. What is the difference between having a factory be in the Philippines, run under those conditions, and moving it in a foreign country and sending Filipinos there? My point is that the fact that those Filipinos are productive abroad means that there must be ways of making a deal with foreign companies 
to invest in Philippine infrastructure and do it in the Philippines. But it will mean opening up the Philippine rules. I don't know how. This is where I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a politician. I'm not a constitutionalist. This is why, if I were to throw in one idea, which I haven't mentioned so far, is that if we were to take China's example. In my view, the thing that the Chinese did that was very unusual, that people rarely remark on, is China did not begin by reforming the whole economy. They reformed only a few outlying areas. And I remind you that when most countries reform, they begin with the most developed parts of the country. What were the most developed parts of the country at the beginning of Deng Xiaoping's leadership? It was Beijing and Shanghai. Beijing and Shanghai were not included in the reforms. They reformed in Guangdong and Fujian. Why did they pick Guangdong and Fujian? For a number of reasons. One is Guangdong and Fujian were relatively unimportant, and therefore opposition from entrenched groups would be weak. That's one. Two, Guangdong and Fujian speaks Cantonese and Fujianese, which are not surprisingly tied to Hong Kong and Taiwan. This is very important because in a world where China officially had no property rights in the early 80s, social ties by foreign investors from Taiwan and Hong Kong made it possible to create deals which were not formally legal, but which were maintained by social ties. Third, by tying them to foreign capital, they basically weakened the ability of the Chinese government to control those areas without killing the goose that lays the golden egg. Fourth. As those areas developed, they created new centers of power that created a vested interest in further reform. In my view, one of the best things the Philippines could do would be to take one of the poorest or most abandoned provinces or islands in the Philippines and let it literally be, or almost, not, not literally, but almost colonized by foreigners. <laughs> and make a mini Hong Kong within the Philippines. And I, I'll say no. Glad you eventually brought it back to the Philippines. <laughs> For a second, I thought we were off on to a China discussion, but that's very useful. Thank you very much. That's very, very nice. Yes, please. A lady here. One sec. Thank you. I'm Jin Ning Nguyen uh, with Voice of Vietnamese Americans. I'm just intrigued by your idea, uh, Professor Nye. And so I take you up on that offer and propose uh, an idea. You said, let's um, put an island of the Philippines out there to be colonized. Please don't use that word. I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> please, please don't use that word. Now, let's, let's, let's use a different term. Maybe the, the ambassador can help me. Let's create a center of peace. Um, what else, what else, <laughs> Professor um, Ambassador by the Philippines um, President Center of Peace? Uh, so you say, uh, economic zone. Economic zone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, please say that again zone. for me. Economic zone for foreign investors. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right at the dispute area, where South China Sea has the problems, and then we bring in science and technology, build a university for to develop oil uh, industries there. And then we would bring in all the foreign investors for that area and, and then resolve the dispute. Now, would that help you to be the center of ASEAN and the center of the changes? And you, can, you certainly can start with new rules, new laws, and do not have to follow the current Filipinos' laws. Thank you very would that much. Be an let's, idea? Yeah, let's get uh, there's some, there's somebody there. Uh, 
Way in the back. Yes, way at the back. Way at the back. Uh, could you stand up, please? Yes. The gentleman in the blue shirt. <coughs> My name is Emerald Delarosa. I'm with Financial Services. My question, or rather, anybody can give us as a comment. Um, 2016 is the election in the Philippines. What is the possibility that the Aquino government will continue its current, um, you know, um, current seat? Or will that be, is he going to be replaced by another candidate? I mean. Thank you. Yes, the gentleman, yes. The, the, the main topic of our meeting for today is... Sorry, can, can, I, you, can you um, give us your name and affiliation? I'm Mr. Lloyd from the University of Maryland. Yep. Uh, the, the, the main topic of our session for today is about economic and political developments and challenges in the Philippines. And my issue would simply focus on the area of the Philippines which is very much forgotten, which is Mindanao. The issue of Mindanao has always been a very tricky issue in the development of the Philippines. It's the second largest island. It's the breadbasket of the country where most agricultural products are made, but somehow development is very slow in Mindanao to the extent that CPP, NPA, MNLF, and MILF, secessionist movements, Muslim groups, or rebel groups, or whatever groups are really pestering the country and it eats a big portion of the national budget. Now my question is, what is the Aquino program for the development of Mindanao in the most comprehensive sense? Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's start with the last question, actually, if you don't mind, and then we'll move uh, backwards to the other two. Steve, can you perhaps respond to the Mindanao question? Uh, yes. Um, uh, the the uh, gentleman from, from the University of Maryland is absolutely right that uh, Mindanao uh, is the Philippines' land of promise, and uh, uh, it has been racked by war of various kinds. Uh, and that's most of my briefings actually have to do with that, since it's one of the things that I focus on. Um, the Asia Foundation is in the International Contact Group, um, and so we go to uh, the negotiations with the Moro Islamic Liberation Front. Over at uh, the School of Advanced International Studies, uh, there's been an uh, opportunity to give a number of different uh, lectures on this, this this issue as people are interested in, in the, the topic. The, the, the fact of the matter is that a, a large chunk of Mindanao is very peaceful. It's just that everybody gets the uh, impression from the fact that there are other parts of the, of the island which are not. As you say, it's the second largest island, so it's a very big island. So you can be hundreds of kilometers away uh, from anything, any danger. Um, and unfortunately, it tends to get labeled uh, as don't go to Mindanao, uh, whereas it re what you really mean is don't go to central Mindanao and the Sulu Archipelago. Um, and with respect to the uh, central Mindanao and the Sulu Archipelago, uh, the administration not only is in uh, 
uh, peace talks with the Moro Islamic Liberation Front. They are working with the Moro National Liberation Front on the full implementation of the peace agreement they had back in 1996. And further, they are trying to reform the governance in the autonomous region in Muslim Mindanao by uh, appointing officers in charge who are not elected and, in fact, banned from running election. I mean, they can't really be banned, but they promise not to run for election in the midterm elections of 2013. Uh, at the same time, the administration has the new Mindanao uh, Economic De Development Authority, uh, headed by uh, a former Congresswoman Antonino, and they deal with the peaceful parts of the of the uh, of the island, and they've had an increased budgetary allocation for infrastructure and the like. Uh, so there is a, uh, a, a definite tendency to try to emphasize uh, the ability of Mindanao to help drive growth in the Philippines. But that will be constrained, as you say, as long as we have these conflicts that have not yet been settled. Um, we're hoping, the, the government is hoping to reach uh, an agreement. I think it's a realistic hope to reach an agreement this year. Well, thank you also very much for that question. You know, in preparation for this uh, panel session, I uh, looked at some of these issues, and there's a very interesting report on the World Bank site in the Philippines on displacement and how it affects uh, uh, economic and social development. One in every ten uh, people in central Mindanao mm. have been displaced from their homes uh, for the last, uh, sorry, 40% of the people in Central Mindanao have been displaced from the homes, and one in 10 of those have been displaced from the homes five times in the last 10 years. It's quite a remarkable statistic, and it's had a huge impact on the economic and social situation uh, situation there. Uh, but do you want to talk a, a I just, bit about I just that? want to talk a little bit more about the special economic zones. Mm -hmm. and, and I mean, that's not a new idea, but it's also an idea that has been tried in the Philippines. So it's not that we and especially the, the Subic and the Clark Bay experiments, uh, did very well in the beginning. And then after a while, it sort of dissipated. So somehow, it's harder maybe to isolate oneself from the political forces in, in the Philippines compared to China. Uh, so where, where I fully agree with the success factors that you mentioned in China. Uh, but similarly, uh, on, the, on the positive side, uh, a lot of the economic uh, manufacturing development has taken place in special economic zones in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the industrial parks in the special economic zones are actually quite efficient. And the authorities that are managing it are quite, a, quite, quite helpful for facilitating, facilitating foreign investors in, 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 in operating there. But it has its limitations, and, and if you want, it's not the total isolation of the special economic zones in China, uh, for good reasons. And the lady at the back who asked the question about whether the president will, did I get it right, whether the president will change in 2016 under the Constitution, the president is restricted to a six-year, one term of six years. So by so, definition, yeah. I think the answer is yes. All right, let's have another three questions. And after that, what I'm going to do is ask our three panelists to come up with a two-minute concluding statement, and we'll bring it to an end. Sir, you at the front. Uh, thank you. Uh, uh, I'm Greg Rushford. Uh, I'm here on assignment for uh, foreignpolicy.com to write a column about the Philippines, picking up on President Aquino's comment that they no longer want to be the sick man of Asia. Uh, is my headline, or could I, would any of you feel comfortable if I conclude that the Philippines is on its way to becoming the, uh, the next tiger cub? 
I think we'll ask all the three to respond to that. It's very interesting. Yes, right at the back, gentleman at the back. Hi, my name is Chad from Comonix International. I was uh, curious about the ASEAN uh, future from your perspective on the economic, uh, the impact of the, which sectors do you think will benefit most from the ASEAN integration in 2015, which are most threatened, given that structurally the Philippines is, is not as competitive as a lot of the ASEAN members? Thank you very much. It's actually quite closely connected to the first question as it happens. Yes, sir. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about dealing with the established uh, political interests, and, and that Can makes... Introduce yourself, please. Oh, sorry. Aaron Hanswitz, George Mason University. But it makes me wonder, because I mean, we've been very concerned about good policy, how resilient is good policy to a leadership change? Are, are we going to see reversals if, if there's a change of leadership? How, how long can they last? Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. Actually, those are pretty broad questions. One on whether uh, uh, the Philippines can become the next uh, tiger economy and uh, whether that could potentially be linked to the ASEAN economic community slated for 2015. And secondly, whether policies can be reversed. Uh, you know, are policy reforms irreversible? Let's start with uh, you, John, and then uh, you, Steve, and finally, Bert. John. Um, I'd say it has a lot of potential to do more but I am agnostic about whether those steps are being taken. The first stage of controlling the corruption, I think, is very important. But the second stage, in terms of showing openness, genuine, dramatic openness to new investment, I think I'll, I'll wait and see. Anything on the implications for specialization as a result of further integration? Oh, um, I, I won't have something to say about that, but I guess I, I will say something about the political system. I think this is a long-term problem in the Philippines, that in some ways the irony is that the democracy in the Philippines is among elites in the sense that there's, it is competition, but competition among elites. It's almost as if it cycles among elites. And I think one of the issues, therefore, has to be that there has to be a truce. There must be a way for the different factions that lead the Philippines, regardless of who's in power, to have a compromise. Be unfortunately, like it or not, one of the things I fear is attempts to stamp out all bad practice in one administration will merely be seen by the opposition as an excuse for retaliation when they're in power. There must be some kind of understanding about which violations or which behavior is beyond the pale and must be stopped, and which things that there will be, how shall I put it, an informal amnesty. The reason for that is that until the Philippines can create policies that all the major factions are willing to commit to in the near future, investors will see even very the best policy as unstable. And I think that is the issue. Can you find a policy that even your enemies will support? Steve. Um, uh, I, would, uh, I would save my answer to Greg's question till the end. <laughs> the, the question of whether it's one way to be a tire coat, because I think that's part of, part of the, the whole thing. I would say that, that uh, uh, the key to resilient policy changes is to create interest in the continuation of the policy. 
I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, CCT, as, as Ambassador Quisha mentioned, was actually begun in the previous administration. And President uh, Aquino was elected as the unarroyo, and yet continued the policy. Another one that uh, he continued is the roll-on, roll-off. Uh, in an archipelago, uh, the 7,107 islands, uh, it, it dramatically reduces the cost of logistics if you are able to drive the truck onto the uh, ferry instead of just uh, um, loading it on and loading it off sack by sack. Uh, and that has happened, and he has continued it. So it's possible to have these kinds of continuity over time. Now, we do have this, this, this issue of the, uh, of the political debates that are ongoing. As I mentioned, we have midterm elections in 2013, which are seen as a rehearsal for the elections of 2016, since President uh, uh, Aquino cannot succeed himself. And nobody thinks he wants to, which is unusual in the Philippines. Uh, now. That brings me to one of my reasons for optimism. Because nobody thinks he wants to, if he is able to negotiate these kinds of truce, people are not going to think it's a self-interested negotiation. Rather, it's something that he can be doing for the future of the country. Uh, so to me, uh, there are reasons for, for hope, but I'm getting into my summary statement. So. All right, good. Thank you. But Well, let me take on the, the tiger cop and I say on integration at the same time. I think, I think that is quite related. Of course, there are, uh, there's lots of tiger cops in the Philippines. I mean, some of the sectors are doing really well, especially the BPO, but more broadly, the services sector, either abroad or, or, or domestically. And I think there, there is a clear competitive advantage of, of, of the Philippines, which will be reinforced as, as uh, the, Asia, the ASEAN integration uh, continues. There are some issues with the the movement of of, um, of skilled workers actually in in in, in SA and it's a, it's a critical question for for the income level of the Philippines, but uh, I'm sure they're going to be resolved uh, in due time. Uh, on the on the on the other side of the coin, the SA and integration. Uh, uh, was supposed to also make more progress on the agricultural side. And to some extent, I agree with John. I don't think it's a great conspiracy, but there are lots of issues to be resolved in agricultural policy. Uh, the ASEAN integration could be the vehicle, but those are the ones that are really on the back. The, many of the measures being put on the back burner, uh, as they were with the WTO. Uh, so making more progress there would actually help, uh, help the Philippines also to become a bit more of a powerhouse, actually in agriculture, because probably too many, too many resources are, are devoted to basic staple, which requires a lot of investment, a lot of subsidy to, to make that viable in a number of areas of the Philippines, and too little in the higher value crops where the Philippines has proven to be very, very efficient. So, so uh, there, could be a cub in the, uh, there could be a tiger cub in the agricultural sector as well. Thank you very much. All right, so let me ask uh, John to uh, come up with a sort of summary statement or a concluding statement for two minutes, John. Um, my basic conclusion would be a, a summary of what I've said before. The short way of saying what I've said before is I would like to see the Philippines have a sign that says open for business. That is to sort of say that I want to see them do something that takes advantage. And now that we are on the road to a less corrupt and a more trust, trustworthy political system, we are going to use that to be open to the world. The Philippines is the largest English-speaking country in that area of the world. Those strengths are not being properly exploited. There needs to be a way to leverage both the fact that you have a manpower that is desirable the world over, 
with the fact that the relative poverty is an advantage in the sense that the potential for growth is large. Let me end with, with the standard story that it doesn't require that they need to be absolutely liberal. They merely need to change. But as I said, this change must, is a relative one. Other areas in, the, in that part of the world are growing rapidly like Vietnam, not because they're necessarily more liberal, but because they're liberalizing faster. You know the old joke, they're two men and they suddenly are confronted by a bear. One of the men starts putting on his running shoes and the other guy says, you can't outrun a bear, but the other guy says, I just have to outrun you. <laughs> in the game of economic reform, the task of the Philippines is to show it can change faster than its competitors. And by so doing, it will become the next tiger. Thank you. Steve. Um, I would say that, that uh, I have the best job in the world uh, because I'm in Manila uh, with a staff of about 50 people with a budget that is fairly robust at a time of the Philippines where I can see many things moving where I can hope to provide some assistance, but I also get to learn a lot while, while I'm looking at this. There's many things going on in the Philippines, ranging from the peace talks with the, with the Muslims, to the public finance reforms, to the political maneuvering, to the conditional cash transfer and other social services, getting a stronger safety net. I can see that there could be a, a very good surge over the next four or five years. Uh, I would also bring out the, the Philippines as, as trying to become more outward-oriented. Uh, the open government partnership hasn't been mentioned here, but it's an example of how the Philippines wants to put itself on the world stage and hold itself open to the world and open to, to standards that other people can see of whether they're getting more open, whether they're uh, able to uh, achieve the promises and, and their work plan. The work plan's up on the web and you can find it out. I think that's a good example. The, the increased interaction with ASEAN and trying to get ASEAN involved in the multilateral uh, issues in the West Philippine Sea, South China Sea uh, is another example. So there's a lot going on in the Philippines. Uh, uh, coming back to the question whether that momentum would continue under a, uh, a new administration, I think uh, will be one of the central questions uh, of the 2015 and 2016 as we get close to the new administration. But in the meantime, I'm excited to be there to be some of the people pushing things forward and to be a participant with Filipinos in this attempt to make a new Tiger Cup. Thank you. Bert, you have the last word. Well, there's an outbreak of optimism on the panel. <laughs> John seems to have to <laughs> become positive. It's infectious. <laughs> so, I mean, I, re I, re I repeat my, my, my respect and appreciation of what the Philippines has achieved over the last 25, 30 years, where they had to come from a very deep macroeconomic crisis and then had to go through a phase of democratization, were hit by the Asia crisis. And, and, and so, so then over the last 10 years, achieving this, this macroeconomic stability as, as one basis for, for success is quite, is quite remarkable and important. I mentioned before that I see ti little tigers already growing in a number, of, a number of sectors and that there is a certain political dynamism that I think is going to, to help the Philippines progress more rapidly than in the past. Just, I just want to give one, one example which I found quite striking because I do believe that economic dynamism in the end is, 
is also important for that, for that economic reform. So when I first came to the Philippines, which is now about five years ago, I met with the BPO sector, which was you know, one third of the size that it is now almost. It's grown very, very rapidly. And at that point I asked, well, so is there anything we can do? Is there anything that you need from the government that you, that you, that you feel we could help you out with? And they said, no, there's no need. We're doing fine. We need to be left alone by the government. Three years later, they came to us and they said, well, actually, we're, we're running into constraints. We're running really into constraints with the education sector. We know you're engaged in the education sector and, and a couple of other areas where really we, we, we feel that, that we, can help, we can use some help. And so, so we organized a forum on, on you know, BPOs and on the success of it and what, what further needs to be done. But that's a key driver for further economic reform. So a very successful, internationally very successful sector, uh, frankly, dominated by the, in part by the old names uh, of, of, of the Philippines. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. So they, they will drive, in part, these economic reforms, uh, the education reforms that they need in order to remain successful in a, in a sector which is very open, very dynamic, and in which the Philippines are very competitive. So let me just add that as one of the examples that, that reinforces my optimism for the Philippines. Thank, thank you. you. Well, I'm just delighted that we've ended on a high note because, uh, <laughs> and I want to thank our panelists. Please give them a good hand. And I want to thank all.